Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, And in all, will you pray with me? Father, in you there is no division, no rivalry, no competition. Instead, there is perfect unity. You are our holy God, our Father, our Son, and our Spirit, reigning for all eternity. And God, we are not like you. And our unity is continuously threatened by the flesh's desire to be self-gods. Help us, Father. Help us to make every effort to remain unified as a church. We ask for the Spirit's swift conviction to overturn our heart's corruption, to receive your peace through faith. Speak powerfully through Pastor Ryan and anoint him to convey your truth. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. Pray that you all had a very Merry Christmas and are looking forward to the new year. Anybody else not realize it was going to snow last night? No, I'm the only one that doesn't look at the weather. Okay. I'm excited to be able to preach God's word to you this morning. For those of you who are new or visiting, my name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here, so we want to welcome you. On this last Sunday of 2020, if you have a Bible or a device, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. And we have, over the past four weeks, been walking through a short series, a short topical series called Resilient, as we seek to look at the competing worldviews that seek to overthrow and challenge our Christian worldview. So as we said last week, we are seeking to do, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, and demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is the goal of this series and what we're trying to inform and instruct us in collectively. And this week is the last week of this series. So for the majority of next year and actually starting next week, we will be walking through the book of Acts as we look at the early Christian church and how it was able to flourish in the midst of its difficulties and what that has to say to us today. So be praying for that. We're asking you to be praying for it. And so we're excited for that. But as I said, this is the last week of the Resilient series as we look at the subject of tribalism. Tribalism and the church is the title of today's message. And as we'll come to see, tribalism, in my view, isn't so much of itself a worldview, but really the product of our varying worldviews. We end up falling into various tribes or belonging or associating with those who think and act like us. And this isn't always a bad thing. In fact, it can sometimes be a good thing, but as we'll come to see, the problem with tribalism happens whenever it actually infiltrates the church and causes there to be factions within the church, when it ends up inhibiting the progress of the gospel, and when it causes us to label somebody else as first and foremost what camp they belong to, instead of first and foremost as an image bearer of God. And as I said, tribalism, in a sense, is all around us. We belong to all sorts of tribes. We root for schools we graduated from. We feel a part of that tribe. We root for teams we wish we could have played for. We feel a part of that tribe. 
We root for the Dallas Cowboys because they're America's team, so you should feel a part of that tribe. I'm going to pray for all of you. Speaking of which, think of America. There are those of you in here who are from the Northeast, and you resonate with certain things from that area. A Boston or a New York accent comes out, or the debate between deep dish and thin crust pizza happens, and you feel right at home. Then there are those of you in here from, as Daniel so aptly put it a few weeks ago, the state that shall not be named, and you can't help but talk about how their food choices are better than any other place in America. And as somebody who works with these people, they will talk about it. (laughs) And then there are those of us from the South who don't see Southern cooking as signaling a heart attack, but as actually manna from heaven. So we can associate with tribes based on where we grew up or call home or teams we like or hobbies we enjoy or so many other things. But as I said, the problem with tribes is when they infiltrate the walls of the church and they cause us to factionalize. And this was the issue in Corinth where we find our study this morning. Corinth was a prosperous city on the coast that was known in the ancient world as kind of being the New York and LA and Las Vegas of it. It was the place to be and also the place to get what you wanted. The city had a plethora of religions and cultic practices that were always tempting the Christians to add a little bit of something to their faith. Syncretism is what we call it. A little bit of this gets thrown in, a little bit of that gets tossed in. And before long, the Christian church in Corinth had a lot of Corinth in them. You couple this with the various leaders within the church seeking to address the problems in different ways and factions begin to occur. Various leaders are now followed. One party is saying that this is okay while another is saying, no, that's wrong. It's really this that is allowed. Therefore, varying attitudes and behaviors emerge in the church and it's undermining their Christian unity. Really, their witness to Corinth at large. And so Paul has to do surgery in this letter, radical surgery without killing the patient. And that's exactly what he does. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready Verse 3, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9, for we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray simply that your word would be faithfully proclaimed this morning. I pray that we would see how the gospel unites us first and foremost in Christ. God, help us to resist the temptations of tribalism. Help us to look to you first and foremost in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Much like last week, our goal this morning is to see the pitfalls and trappings of tribalism, particularly what tribalism reveals about us 
when we give into it. So that's the focus this morning. What does tribalism reveal about us when we give into it? So three things from this passage, and then much like last week, a warning and an exhortation for the church. The first is this. Tribalism, when we give into it, reveals our immaturity. It reveals our immaturity. Verses 1 through 2a. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. Paul, throughout 1 Corinthians, does not mince his words, and I appreciate that. In this specific part of the letter, he is writing to address the perceived factions, the tribes that have occurred as each tribe appeals to their various leaders, whether it be Paul or Apollos or somebody else. And in the midst of these factions within the church, Paul starts off by saying that he couldn't even speak to them as spiritual people. You see, that was the entire point of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians, that the Holy Spirit opens our minds to be able to know God and to comprehend what he has done and is doing in the world. The Spirit gives us the ability to evaluate everything, as it says in chapter 2, verse 15. But here in chapter 3, he returns to this problem within the church, and he says, I couldn't even talk to you as a spiritual person, but instead I had to talk to you as a person of the flesh. This is really interesting. Because if you look at chapter 2, verse 14, Paul calls that person, the person without the Spirit at all, as the natural person. They cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit. We would call them an unbeliever today. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, and verse 15, in chapter 3, verse 1, there is the spiritual person or the mature person. And that's what we should all be attaining to. But here, he says, well, you aren't natural because you do have the Spirit, and you're definitely not mature, so what does he call them? Sarkinos, people of the flesh, babes in Christ. He had to talk to them in this manner because of their lack of maturity. They weren't maturing as they should have been. And many of us know what this is like. Think back to when you first professed faith in Christ. Upon our profession, our trusting in Christ alone as our only hope in life and death, many of us had a time in which we would have been called this, a person of the flesh, an infant in Christ. We loved Jesus, but we're still working out what it meant to follow him, to be his disciple. We desired holiness, but sin still seemed to have a hold on certain areas in our life. And so there was this process of maturation and growth, usually over a period of time. When we were saved, we recognized we didn't immediately become mature. We understand this. But Paul writes to his beloved church, and the problem is, is that no maturity has taken place. Their immaturity is still showing as they are now factionalized and divided up into various Christian tribes and failing to present a united church. And Paul tells them, I had to give you only milk. You weren't ready for the meat yet, and you still aren't. The milk, in my view, is that they understood that the gospel saved them. They understood that the gospel saved them, but they weren't yet eating meat because they hadn't come to understand that not only does the gospel save them, but it sanctifies them. It sets them apart for holiness and grows them in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So Paul's not saying that they don't have the Spirit. They do, but he is saying, act like it. Act like you've been saved. Act like you've professed faith in Christ. Your thinking and your behavior are not of the Spirit. 
act in accordance with it. Pursue spiritual growth. Pursue the meat that enables you to grow. It's time to wean. It's time to move on from the milk. In other words, mature. Grow. Stop staying the same. And this leads us to an important point that's uh, vital for us to consider. Immature disciples, immature Christians, people of the flesh, as Paul tells the Corinthians, often sow division whether they realize it or not. Immature disciples often sow division whether they realize it or not. You see, tribalism reveals our immaturity. Instead of seeking to grow, instead of seeking for the church overall to flourish, we seek what makes us happy or what we think to be true or what our version of the church or its leaders should look like. It ends up going uh, with what I said last week in consumerism. They go hand in hand when we fall into these tribes. And that's a recipe for division. But notice the language Paul uses in verse 2. They weren't ready for the meat yet. So not only were they not eating meat, but they weren't even ready for it yet. That should instruct us on what it means to be ready to mature, to have a gentle, contrite, and humble and gracious spirit as we seek to mature and grow in Christ. Those who are immature are often just the opposite of those things. They are harsh, they're prideful, they're legalistic. So in light of that, Let's heed the call collectively, Christ Community Church, to pursue growth in Christ, especially in this coming year. Every single one of us has not arrived. We can still grow, still mature, still deepen our affections and our love for God. Let's pursue maturity in the areas that we still might be on a diet of milk. It will only serve to grow the church in health and maturity overall. Secondly, Tribalism reveals our worldliness. Tribalism reveals our worldliness. Verses 2b through 4. In fact, you are still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? So not only does the tribalism if we fall into it, reveal our immaturity, but it reveals our sinfulness, our iniquity, our worldliness. You see, we as God's people are to be distinct and set apart, a royal priesthood, a group of redeemed saints who, although are not perfect, are marked by graciousness and love and truth and care and gentleness and peace and patience and forgiveness and yes, holiness. But Paul here says, that our tribalism, our factions that conform within a church, reveal that we are not acting like the church, but instead acting like the world. We are not then a beacon on a hill, but a lamp that is covered up. And look at the interesting word usage here in the verses. Beginning of verse 3, because you are still worldly. End of verse 3, are you not acting like mere humans? Again, end of verse 4, are you not acting like mere humans? What does Paul mean here? Well, first, at the beginning of verse 3, he takes the word for being people of the flesh that we looked at from verse 1, sarkinos, and he changes it slightly now in verse 3 to worldly or really fleshly, sarkikos. This is now a stronger word, stronger language. They are not just of the flesh, but behaving according to the flesh. They are acting carnal, 
and worldly, Paul is saying. And then twice he clarifies what he means by behaving worldly, by saying, are you not acting like mere humans? How does most of humanity act? In sin, with quarrels and strife and rivalries. That should not be true of the church. But how is this church in Corinth acting? In sin, with quarrels and strife and rivalries. So whatever they may say about themselves and whatever they may say about God or one another, their character undermines it and shows there to be a major disconnect between what they believe and what they're doing. They may indeed be spiritual, but they're acting like the devil. So we need to heed the call from James chapter 4 when he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scriptures say the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Other translations will say that the Holy Spirit is jealous for you. And so when you give in to sin and you start acting worldly, the Holy Spirit is jealous for you. He wants you to pursue holiness. And this is the truth of tribalism. When we partake in it, we reveal ourselves to be acting like the world. Instead of being set apart and desiring to be unified in Christ, desiring to serve and to build up the body collectively, we undermine all of that with our various tribes and we end up fracturing the body. We end up honestly being hypocritical and worldly as we proclaim to a dying world, come, taste and see, we have something so much better to offer And then they come in and they shout right back at us. It's no different in here than it is out there. That's what tribalism does. It undermines our witness. And what should we be like? Well, we just finished 1 Peter a few weeks back. Remember what he says in chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not even a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's really hard to be the chosen people of God, to be the church to be called, to be set apart, to be seeking to pursue holiness, to marvel at the mercy and the grace of God that he has given us in Christ. It's really hard to be called that and yet see no noticeable difference from the rest of the world. Darkness doesn't do anything proclaiming more darkness to the world. The light is what brings about change. So let us, as the church collectively, be salt and light, truth and grace, Love and mercy to a lost and dying world. Tribalism and rivalries are diseases that infect the body like a plague, like gangrene until it slowly spreads and it ends up killing off more and more members. And many of you know this to be true. You have walked through difficult church splits and church divisions Sleepless nights that cause you to question your faith because of how sin has so infected the church. You've been hurt by the church or by its leaders and you're still trying to work out what forgiveness looks like in your own heart. That's hard. That's really difficult. And I don't want to just brush those things aside and tell you it shouldn't hurt anymore because I know it does. Laura and I in our young, uh, young lives have been part of some really difficult church revitalizations where we would often pray and plead with God, why? 
Why are we here? Why are we going through this? We don't know what to do. So my plea to all of us is to not let those things that can cause rivalries and dissensions, don't don't let those things fester and stew, as that will only brood further sin through gossip and hate in our hearts. Instead, we need to be a church that is marked by open confession and vulnerability and forgiveness, because if we are that church, then we safeguard ourselves really well against the temptations of tribalism. And look at how Paul characterizes the Corinthian tribalism. Some are saying, I belong to Paul. Others are saying, I belong to Apollos. It's no different today. We all have our various people we follow. Whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill or all-mill, continuationist or cessationist, I promise I'm not speaking in tongues. We all have the people we listen to and follow. And that's in part the problem with tribalism. We end up majoring on the minors, one of those things that I said, instead of on the gospel. So let me say this. The minors aren't bad. Many denominations and various churches and networks collectively agree on secondary and tertiary issues and decide to worship and gather together. That's completely fine. In fact, it's good. We can do more and get further together than we can apart. However, making these minors a major thing is where the issues come in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is of first importance. So hear me here. It does matter if your convictions are more Reformed or Arminian, more complementarian than egalitarian, more Baptist than Lutheran, more incarnational than attractional, more charismatic than cessationist. It all matters. Just not as much as the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should hold deep convictions regarding all issues the Bible speaks to, but we should not make secondary things the main thing. When we do that, we end up succumbing to worldliness and tribalism, and we lose our Christian unity and our Christian liberty. So here at Christ Community Church, we do seek to keep the main thing the main thing. Christ and Him crucified. And we will faithfully teach what God's word says and we write out our statement of faith for clarity on where we stand on many secondary and tertiary issues that we hold. But we don't seek to make one of the minor things the test of your faith or your faithfulness. We desire to preach Christ and him crucified and seek to show how the gospel is applicable to all areas of your life. And again, this is what the Corinthians had failed in. They had elevated certain beliefs and practices and people rather than keeping Christ at the center of their faith. And this resulting tribalism within the church revealed that they were still plagued by worldliness. And that is a sad thing as it undermines the church's mission into its community and really the world at large. Thirdly, tribalism reveals our ignorance Tribalism reveals our immaturity, it reveals our worldliness, and it also reveals our ignorance. Verses 5 through 9, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
As we said earlier, Paul is fed up in this letter with the factions and the tribes that has occurred in the Corinthian church. And so now he tells them point blank that what these tribes and factions reveal about them is that they are ignorant of the ways of God. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are simply servants through whom you believed. The Lord has called them, he says, to individual roles. Paul was the church planner. He proclaimed the gospel in Corinth and helped to establish elders and helped to establish the church. And then he went off and he did it again elsewhere. Apollos was the pastor, it seems like, who watered there. He labored amongst the church in Corinth and sought to teach them the ways of God. And God, though, Paul tells us, is ultimately the one who gave the growth. So Paul is telling us, missionaries, church planners, pastors, apologists, evangelists, anybody else ultimately is not really anything but a servant to God. God gives the growth. And therefore, God deserves the glory and the honor and the praise for any work that is done in any place around the world. So when we succumb to following this person or that person, or succumb to various tribes within the body of Christ, we reveal our ignorance about how God is at work in the world. He is at work through his servants, those called according to his purpose in order to serve and to build up the body of Christ. They in and of themselves are not anything, as Paul says, but it is truly God who is at work through them and therefore deserves the recognition. And your pastors know this to be true as well. The refrain is the same. What is Ryan? What is Daniel? What is Patrick? What is Jeff? What is any one of our elders? The answer 2,000 years later is the same for us. Servants who seek to labor amongst you. As Jeff reminds us often so well on staff, this is ultimately the Lord's church. Servants come and go, but he will be faithful in building. Christ will be faithful in building his church. So CCC is not about the prestige or the status of its leaders, but ultimately we are about King Jesus. We are here for his glory, not for ours. We have to all be united on that front in order to fulfill the vision and the mission of the church. So when we partake in tribalism, it reveals us to be immature, worldly, and ultimately ignorant of God's ways in this world. So in light of these three points, we need to heed a warning to the church about tribalism and then an exhortation in light of it. So the warning to the church is this, very simple. Be on guard against tribalism within the church. Be on guard, whether it's to various leaders or to various thoughts or various secondary issues. One of the most prominent ways that tribalism manifests itself today is often the same way that it did in Corinth, through the sole allegiance to various leaders within the church. This leads then to inflated egos that manifest in pride. And as the Proverbs tell us, pride cometh before the fall. So we need to heed Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians to understand that God gives the growth. That our allegiance is to him first and foremost. But friends, we often realize this after it's too late. How many reports do we hear year after year of pastoral or church leader failings and the subsequent hurt it does to the church afterwards? Of people's faith being tied to this pastor or to that leader and then not knowing where to go once their sin comes to the light. Be wary of putting a person in the place of Jesus. They will always fail you. Make the foundation of your faith only one person and one person only, Jesus Christ. He is your king. 
He is the author and the perfecter of your faith, the one who will see you through until the end, the only one who is perfect and worthy of our complete allegiance. And part of being on guard against tribalism is making sure that the main thing is kept the main thing, as we talked about. So yes, hold your convictions tightly, but learn what it means to practice Christian unity. Unity is needed when there are differences, right? If we were all the same and thought the same, we could really heed the call to unity very easily. But the beauty of Christian unity is that it exists amongst diversity, diverse people and diverse thoughts. So let us fight for Christian unity and Christian liberty here at CCC and protect that as a good and biblical thing. And this is coming from someone who loves to debate and argue about the finer points of theology and really has to tone it back here and there, who often barges into the other three pastors' offices, whether they're working or not, just to launch a series of questions or to probe them on something they said. There is a way to do that that is humble and generous and genuinely seeking to sharpen one another. And there's a way to do that that is pugnacious and seeks to question the other person's faith and standing before God. Let's do the first one, not the second. Major on the majors, minor on the minors, And Paul even tells the Corinthians this in the first chapter, verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions amongst you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. May we heed that that call to unity. Resist the urge to put your hope in a leader or to tie your faith to them, and resist the urge to make a secondary issue the primary test of faith. Christ is our King, and it is His death and burial and resurrection, the gospel, that we are going to proclaim. Lastly, an exhortation to the church about tribalism. An exhortation to the church about tribalism. If you wrote down my three points, do you kind of notice the undercurrent running beneath them? Tribalism reveals us to be immature and worldly and ignorant. But what's the antidote? What's the opposite of these things? Pursuing maturity. Pursuing holiness and pursuing God. When tribalism reveals us to be immature, when we give into it and it reveals us to be immature, this means that we need to mature in Christ. When tribalism reveals us to be worldly, this means that we need to better understand the necessity of holiness in our lives. And when tribalism rears its head in our churches, then it shows us to be ignorant of God and his ways. We then need to pursue knowing God all the more. Paul, as you know, wrote a second letter to the Corinthian church in which he praised them for doing much better. But he still had to remind them of these truths that I'm talking to you about as he tells them that they are still being sanctified and still growing in holiness, still needing to pursue God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, what promises? We just spent the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians outlining them, the glory of the new covenant and how we get to be a part of that and how it's so much greater than what came before. So he's writing to us who are in the new covenant. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So what are some practical ways that we can grow in holiness? Through communion and fellowship and prayer with him through communion and fellowship and prayer with one another in the church, through seeking to read God's revealed word and to meditate on it and to pray over it and to pray through it. Friends, we need to earnestly seek after God. 
Do you desire holiness in your life? Do you honestly desire it? Do you pray earnestly? We have to. We have to say, oh God, I want to know you. Help me to know you more. Help me, God. Help me to discipline myself for the sake of godliness. Help me to conquer this sin that I'm always falling back into. Help me to read your word when I don't feel like it. God, it's so much easier to just watch something than to read your word for one minute. Help me, God. Help me to love the things of God and to disdain the things of this world. God, discipline the sin from my life. Allow others to speak into me and to sharpen my life. Grow me in a love for you. Grow me in a love for others. Do you pray earnestly to God? Because our affections for God have to be stirred for there to be true growth in our lives. Otherwise, we are fooling ourselves. More often than not, tribalism comes about in the church when there isn't growth, when there is stagnation, when there's just an assumption that everything is just fine. We need to see how immaturity and worldliness and ignorance fuel tribalistic tendencies in the church. And then we need to guard our hearts and our minds and pursue hard after God. The reality, friends, is that if you're not pursuing God, if you're not growing in your relationship with him, then you are drifting and you're drifting away. There's no lazy river to float on within Christianity. We have to pursue hard after him to protect the church from tribalism, to work hard at fellowship within the church, and to seek to be the people of God who are united first and foremost for God. So may that be true of us today and this coming year and every year, Christ community. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have revealed it to us, and I thank you for sending Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, to unite us to you. Help us to recognize the unity that we have in you. God, thank you so much that our church is not plagued by tribes and rivalries and dissensions, but help us to be on guard against it. We know that sin can creep in at any time. We love you and we thank you for what you're doing. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you.